0: My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. All right, guys. Well, if you want to get out your Bibles, you can head to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Today, we are actually going to go from, and we're not reading the whole thing, but we're going to get through Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That's this next uh, section of Scripture that we are going to look at. Um, Again, uh, we're trying to do this in about 10 weeks, and so we're not going to be able to read everything and dissect everything in this book. That would take 10 years. So, uh, you know, I would just encourage you guys as kind of to go along with what we're doing, to just add this maybe to your daily reading, Um, whatever it is that you want to do. Just make sure that you're reading. You're not just getting the Romans that we're talking about here, but you're giving the, you're getting the uh, full picture as you read um, on your own time. So, uh, to the title of the message today uh, is a very encouraging title, and it's called The Unrighteousness of Humanity. Good. I've never had a woo for that before. That is awesome. Uh, But that is what this next section is all about, is the unrighteousness of humanity. And last week, uh, as we opened up Romans, we talked about the word gospel. Does anybody remember what the word gospel means? Good news, yes. Uh, And we talked specifically about that definition of good news. It's the good news of God. This is God's good news. And Paul was saying God has some really good news that he wants to tell the world. And I, an apostle, uh, have been sent to tell that good news to whomever, uh, wherever God will lead me. And we talked about how that good news is also uh, now ours to tell as well. Whomever and wherever God leads us. Our neighbors, our neighbors coworkers, our family, our friends. The list goes on and the list goes on. But here's the thing about good news. Good news, try to follow me here. This is like a a brain algorithm. I don't know what it is. Good news is only as good as how bad the bad news is which it replaces. Okay, let me say that again, okay? Because it's not even really clear as I say it out loud. Let me say this one more time though. Good news is only And some of you guys are grammar people in here, like, you could have said it this way, and I probably could have. Good good news is only as good as how bad the bad is, which it replaces. You following me? Okay, it might not have been said real well, but you can kind of go there with me. Okay, let me give an example, all right? You decide you're making dinner, okay? If you can't cook, imagine, all right? You decide that you're making dinner, and as you're getting out the ingredients, you realize you're missing a key ingredient. You voice out loud, oh man, I don't have two eggs. All right, can't make dinner. Then somebody opens the refrigerator, looks around and says, good news. I found two eggs behind the butter. Is that good news? Yeah, I mean, we're not super impressed, but sure, it's good news. You're like, oh good, I can make the dinner that I wanna make, okay. But is it possible for that same good news to be better? Is it possible for that same good news to be better? The answer to that is yes, if we make the situation worse. Okay? Scenario number two. You've already started making dinner. Well, Okay, you're following me now. You're halfway through making dinner, actually, and it's time to put in two eggs. You go to the refrigerator and discover you are out of eggs. Well, you've already opened and combined all these ingredients. You can't put them back, all right? You've already done it. In fact, these ingredients can't go into anything else. It was for this dinner and only this dinner. So if you don't have two eggs, you're just going to have to throw all this stuff out. You've already spent an hour on making dinner. You didn't get home until late, so you're already pushing it. How many people have been there before? Mm-hmm. The kids have to be in bed soon because there's school tomorrow. There's nothing else in the house you can make because you were going to go to the store tomorrow and this was the last meal that you even had in your house. You can't go to the store now because it's closed. You can't ask a neighbor because you live in Montana and the neighbor lives 45 minutes in every direction. You don't own chickens. Plus your family is walking in every three minutes complaining, I'm hungry, when's dinner gonna be ready? Right? Plus, you lost your job that day. We're just gonna make it as terrible as we possibly can, all right? Same news. Same news. Somebody opens the refrigerator, looks around and says, hey, good news, I found two eggs behind the butter. Is that news gotten better? Yeah, right? (laughs) Like You went from just being like, oh, okay, I found some eggs, to like, thank you, Lord, for the eggs. This means so much to me. Yeah, that news now is exponentially better news. And as bad news gets worse, guess what happens to the good news? It gets better. It gets so much better. And that's the point of our scripture that we're going to talk about today. The passage we're going to talk. Uh, What God is aiming to do through Paul in all of Romans is tell us how good the good news really is. That's what he wants to tell us in all of Romans. There's good news and it's amazing, amazing news. But in order to do that, he takes this next section to teach us just how bad the bad news is. That's what he takes this next section to do. So that should tell you what an encouraging ride we're in for today, all right? <laughs> we're going to make the bad news real bad today, all right? He hints at the good news in the last verse that we read last week, which was Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, I think I have it up there. Yes, I do. Um, and this is what it said. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight, all right? So the good news of God tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Well, is that good news? But it's not to everyone. It is good news to you and I, but it's not good news to everyone. You see, I could walk up to anyone on the street and be like, hey, good news, Jesus died for you, and if you put your faith and trust in him, you'll be saved. But to a person who doesn't think they need saving, that's not good news. You're just being really annoying. All right? That's not good news. What we must do and what this section of Romans does is show someone their need for a savior. No one will want a savior if they don't think they need a savior, all right? uh, One commentator said that God's aim in this part of Romans is to shred the conscience of every person on the planet. That's that's pretty harsh. To shred the conscience of every person on the planet. And as you're going to see, he does that very well. God does that very well in this. First, he shreds the conscience of the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not a Jew, everybody else in the world who's not a Jew. Then he shreds the conscience of the Jews, and then he comes back and shreds them together again in case they didn't get enough, all right? So that's what he's going to do in uh, this. So let me, let me ask you a question. Um, Jew or Gentile, uh, raise your hand if you fall in one of those categories. Yep, all of us. Every single one of us falls, so you guys get what's going on today. Um, Today's passage is a little bit difficult. It's hard to look at uh, because it's not being fun reminded of our sinfulness, right? Do you guys wake up and go, Lord, just remind me of my sinfulness today. God, if you could just remind me of what a wretch that I really am, I would really appreciate that. Like, that's not something that we really do. Um, But the Bible doesn't set out uh, to give mankind a good time. It sets out to save them. It sets out to save them. I read in one commentary how a college group in New England um, put this first section of scripture that we're going to read, the first part we're going to read here in a second, um, into contemporary wording for the 21st century, and then went out and distributed it on campus uh, to a lot of students, not letting them know where it came from not letting them know about the source. They took out the, the scripture numbers, they put it into contemporary words, and then they passed it out to people on campus. Um, and uh, they were soon asked to come before the university authorities, and it was demanded that they reveal the author of this incredibly offensive writing. So that's what, that's what we're looking at today, all right? So everybody buckle up, it's gonna be a good time. Uh, And so let's look at this first section, all right? We're going to look at first Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Uh, And it starts out with a bang, Romans 1, 18. Uh, It begins by making mention of the wrath of God, all right? Here's what it says. But God shows his anger, wrath, in some translations is what it says. God shows his wrath, his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If I told you that you had two choices, okay? I'm gonna give you two choices. You can go to Prospect Park and hold a sign that has this verse on it, all right? Or I told you you could go to Prospect Park and hold up a sign that had John 3.16 on it. Which one are you picking? Probably John 3.16, right? That just seems to be a lot easier. That just seems to be a lot better, because talking about God's love and everlasting life to anybody who believes in him, that's a little easier than talking about the wrath of God. Um, talking about God's wrath is never the most loved topic when approaching someone with the good news of Christ. In fact, it almost, we almost kind of think that, that it actually opposes the good news of Christ, it's kind of how people treat it sometimes, because the idea of a God who punishes people for their actions and the ultimate punishment of an eternity in hell tends to put people a bit on edge. Yeah, it kind of triggers people a little bit, all right? Um, you guys have seen it. You guys have seen uh, if, you've, if you've walked in Times Square at all, or if you've walked on some corners. Um, I, don't, I haven't really seen it in Brooklyn so much, but when you're in Manhattan— and you're going and you're looking, there are a lot of people who are there, um, you know, that, that have these, uh, we call them hellfire and brimstone messages for people that, you know, they hold signs and it's like, you will, uh, you will experience the wrath of God. Uh, hell is waiting for you. Um, and that's kind of how it goes. Now, I don't see a lot of people crowding around those people going, can you tell me more? Like, I would love for you to tell me more. Like, you just don't see that uh, very often. But Here's what I want us to understand is that God's wrath is something that must be talked about when talking about God's grace. It has to be talked about. It's not a cuss word. But a lot of times we, we treat it like it is. Whenever it's like, oh, the wrath of God, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> right? Like we kind of treat it like it's a cuss word, but it's not. You might, you might lead with grace to break the ice. Maybe you want to hold a sign that says God loves you. That's fine. But at some point, you are going to have to mention God's wrath because, and remember this, grace is not grace without wrath. It's not. It's just not. Here's something we need uh, to understand is that God's wrath is not like man's wrath. It's not. Whenever we think of wrath, a lot of times we have a bad connotation with that because we're putting our own context into what wrath is. When people hear the word wrath, they think of like a wild and crazy emotional outburst full of like vengeance, uh, you know, at some offense that has happened against them. Um, and, and you see this type of wrath in, you know, magnified in movies where someone has done something to anger someone else, and then they get this wild look in their eye, and then you know what's coming next. It's going to be the wrath of that person, you know, and, and all of a sudden they go on this unhinged, like, retribution spree. Um, this is not God's wrath. That is not God's wrath. God does not see sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, which is what that scripture says, and then like push over his throne and say, that's it. I'm, I, I'm, I, they won't do what I'm telling them to do. I'm going to get them. Like that's not, that's not what God's wrath is. He's not throwing some like cosmic temper tantrum up there, okay? Um, In Psalm 145, verse eight, this is what's true about God. Because people can think that. Like when they hear about God's wrath, that's what they think. They're like, oh man, he's a bully, right? Look at what actually scripture says about about God. In Psalm 145, 8, it says, "'The Lord is gracious and merciful, "'slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.'" I'm gonna read that one more time. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's anger is not a sinful anger like we imagine anger to be. His anger is just, it's righteous, it's holy. His wrath is just and righteous and holy. And we want a just God. We do. We want a just God who upholds justice perfectly. We don't want a corrupt judge in New York City who's just walking around releasing a bunch of people who are dangerous. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't ever accept that from a judge. Why? Because we expect justice. That's what we expect. And we don't just expect justice. We expect it to be fair. We expect it to be balanced. We expect it to be good. We expect it to be ethical. That's what we look for in a regular judge. And God does all of that perfectly. God is the perfect judge. He's infinitely more righteous and just than even the most honorable and ethical judge who ever existed. And God is patient. Praise the Lord that God is patient. He's been patient with me, incredibly patient with me. Uh, He's patient with me every day that I mess up. He's patient with me. He was patient with me long enough to allow me to come to know Christ as my savior because he could have He could have justified um, his wrath on me way before I actually came to know Christ because there were plenty of offenses, all right? Plenty of offenses, but he didn't. He was patient. And his patience is on display with billions of people right now at this very moment. It's on display. But eventually, his patience is going to run out. That is going to happen. Eventually, he must execute justice to those who are, as this scripture says, sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, all right? And he spends the rest of this chapter, chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, defining who the sinful, wicked people are. And spoiler alert, it's everybody. All right, so he starts with the Gentiles, starts with the Gentiles, uh, the ones who were not given the written law. Okay, they were not given the law as in the Ten Commandments. They were not given that. Um, but it turns out they do have a law written on their hearts, not on tablets. And so they still, sound, they still stand accountable. Uh, but he goes in verse 19, and I want us to see this for a second. Let's read this. It says this. He's talking about Gentiles. Or he's talking about really anybody who doesn't believe in God's existence. This is what he says. They know the truth about God. All right. God's existence is what he's talking about. They know the truth about God's existence because he's like, all these people that don't believe, they know the truth because he has made it obvious to them. God has made his existence obvious to every person on the planet. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. He's made it obvious that he exists. People have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. They have no excuse. So he's saying, no matter who the person is, if they're a person, he's talking mainly about the people who who don't believe that there's a God. He's like, they have no excuse for not believing that there is a God. And I think that that is incredibly interesting. And I think that whenever he says, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. You give me someone who does not believe in God and I'll give you someone who's gonna be uneasy about that belief their whole entire life. They won't. Like somebody can say, I definitively say there is no God. All right. But I promise you the, the entire existence of that person, they're going to doubt that in their mind. Why? Because everything logically inside of them is going to point to there's a God. Everything, every logical bone in a, in someone's body points to there is a God. You're like, well, how is that the case? Because of the earth and the sky, because of the creation of the entire world. Because here's what's interesting to me is that I can walk up to someone and I can challenge them logically and I can say, Hey, I have a question. Um, that that watch on your hand, um, do you believe that? Do you believe that that somebody made that? They're gonna go, Yeah, I believe that somebody made that watch. Well, how how do you how do you know? Because the watch is here. Like the watch doesn't just appear. They're gonna look at you like you're dumb. The watch just doesn't appear out of nowhere. Like somebody actually has to make the watch oh, okay, like if you, if you walk past a snowman, all right, like nobody in their mind goes, that's a random act right there. Look at, what the, look at what the weather did. No, like when you walk past a snowman, you're looking at the snowman and you're picturing the kids or adults, <laughs> whoever like put that snowman together and you pictured them having a good time and, and really enjoying themselves. You're like, oh, that's cool. Like logically your brain goes there, okay? So, so here's what's interesting to me is that when you take creation, you take the world, which by the way, the entire universe and everything in it is infinitely more intricate than a watch or a snowman. And then you're going to allow your brain to say, nobody made that. But you are going to say that somebody made a watch, somebody made a snowman. Like you look at biology. All right, you look at, look at, you look at how the, the human body is created and made and sustains and, and can even function, which is insanely more intricate than a snowman being built, yet you're trying to convince yourself that it happened on accident and that it happened by random chance, randomness just, ha- just happening. And then all of a sudden, boom, all of existence exists, like is here. Like you are going to have a hard time explaining why your brain won't accept that for a snowman, but will accept it for the entire universe. That's a very, very hard thing to reconcile in your mind. And he says this about those people, because those people know that there is a God, but they're suppressing that there is. They're going, but I'm going to try to convince myself that there's not. Although I'm going to continually question that because it doesn't make sense that this world exists without a maker, but I'm going to continue to suppress that. In verse 21, he says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God. Like they know that there's a higher power. They know that there's some sort of something that created everything. They know God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. That's your brain, if you're gonna convince yourself there is no God, you're gonna have to go down now a path of logical thinking. And they're gonna, and he says, they think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and they became confused. Why? Because you're going against every rational bone in your body. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols. Shows that were made to worship. They worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. D.A. Carson says it's the unrighteous act of de-godding God. That's what this is. It's dethroning, the dethroning of God and placing something else there in his place, whether it's an idol, whether it's yourself. And then he goes on in verse 24, and it says, so God, because these people wanted, they convinced themselves there was no God, and they're going to go live their own life then and pretend that there isn't a God. They're not going to obey this God. They're not going to do anything. So God, what this, and this is harsh wording, but it says abandoned them. And what that means is, is that he handed them over like a prisoner who was sentenced. That's what that word actually means. It says he abandoned them to do whatever shameful things. Now you got chaos, If there is no God, then there is no morality, and now all you have is utter chaos because nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody can tell you that there's a right. Nobody can tell you that there is a wrong. In fact, morals are absolutely relative. You can do whatever you want if there is no authority. And so he says, He says, he handed them over to do whatever shameful things, all right? And he's talking about impurities. And this is interesting. It's a term that often used, it's often used of decaying matter, especially like a corpse. And it says, whatever shameful things their hearts desired. So here's what he did. He removed his protection from creation, from his people who reject him and basically handed them over and allowed them to rot in the consequences of where they wanted to take themselves instead of following God instead of following God. And as a result, here's what he says, continuing on, as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and they served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Verse 26, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. And then he says this, even, he's like, you can't even imagine how shameful it is. He says, even the women, and this is interesting, because why does he say it like this? Why does he say women? One thing I learned, and it makes perfect sense, is that it's because in most cultures, women are the last to be changed or affected by a moral collapse. That's just in a woman. All right. They're usually the last. If you go and do a study, they're usually the last to change in in a moral collapse. Okay. And he says this, as a result, they did vile. Nope. Even the women turned against the natural, which that just means created, God created way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal as created by God, sexual relations with women burned with lust for each other. And men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. Penalty they deserved. Like, what that means is it's just the law of reaping what you sow. Galatians 6, 8 complements this passage perfectly. It says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh, not doing the will of God, the one who sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then he goes on in verse 28, he says this, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, since these Gentiles decided it is foolish that there is a God, this trickle down effect is crazy. He abandons them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Look at how, look at how depraved everything gets. Like it just all goes downhill, all full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And this is so random to me. And they disobey their parents. I love that like you get all of these things that are like written in there and he's like gonna top it all off. They're disobedient to their parents. Maybe that's a bigger deal than what we think it is in society, right? So he says, they refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and they have no mercy, these people. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. So here's what's interesting. God God has, has put not only a knowledge of him on their hearts, but a sense of justice in them as well. They know right from wrong intuitively. Have you ever thought about that? People who don't believe in God, how do they know the difference between right and wrong? Intuitively. Because if there is no God, then there is no moral giver. So how does everyone pretty much agree in every culture on the face of the planet that stealing is not okay, that it's wrong. We actually say the word wrong. How do we know on, on almost every culture in the planet that, that murder, rape, all of these things are, are wrong and must be punished? How, how does that exist without a moral lawgiver? Law giver? Like that, that's, so whenever you do something wrong and you feel guilty about that, if there is no God, why? Why would anybody feel guilty about that? So he says, yet they do them anyway. They know right, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Man, misery loves company. And somebody who's trying to explain God away, they want as many people on their side as they can to make them feel better about what they're trying to convince themselves of. That's just something that, that happens. So you can see why this scripture would ruffle feathers. You can see why if this was put in contemporary language and handed to people, Uh, they would be completely offended um, because this scripture condemns every single one of us in this room. Every single one of us in this room falls into some of these things that we have done. And it highlights our unrighteousness before God. And nobody wants their unrighteousness highlighted. Nobody, Nobody wants to be called out on that stuff. So you can see um, I can't remember where I read it, but this is so good. There's a story of a guy who set up somewhere, uh, you know, like pretend it's like Prospect Park or something. And it had a sign that said, come and take a look in the mirror and tell me what you see. And so people were stopping by and they were like, all right, let me look, you know, into this, into this mirror. So they come over and he held up this scripture and asked them to read it. That's what he did. He asked them to read this scripture. That was the mirror that he wanted them to see themselves in. And this scripture for us is like looking into a mirror. No matter who you are in this room, you see yourself in it. No matter who you are in the world, when you look at what we just read, you see yourself in it. And that's not an easy thing. And there are two types of people that are gonna react to this message. There's two ways that they're going to react to this message after looking into the mirror. There are those who will go against their conscience and reject it, and they'll reject the messenger for its offensiveness. They'll reject the message for its offensiveness, they'll reject the messenger for its offensiveness, and there are those who will see themselves in the mirror, they will see their offense, they'll be frightened, and they'll be poised for good news. They'll be frightened, but they'll be poised for good news because that's bad news. Remember, the bad news is to show just how amazing the good news is. And so next, Paul moves on to the Jews because I'm sure that the Jews, after reading what Paul just said, would be tempted to be like, get them, Paul, those godless Gentiles, those heathens who won't acknowledge you or your existence, who replace you with idols. Tell them, get them. But really this next section, is, it's, not, it's not just for the Jews as well. Just like the one before, it wasn't really only for Gentiles. If there were Jews that felt the same way, it's for them as well. Well, it's for Gentiles, you know, people who consider themselves religious, in other words. Um, anybody who, who says they believe in God, all right, they, they would fall into this category as well. Um, so it's for the Jew who prides himself in their heritage and trust that that alone for their salvation, their heritage. Like, I'm a Jew, so I'm going to be okay. Um, but it's also applicable to the churchgoer who prides himself in their belief in God and trusting that for their salvation as well. All right? Um, and he actually takes more scripture in this section, more words on this uh, type of person. And we can't read it all today, but it takes up basically the entirety of chapter 2 and the first eight verses of chapter 3. Uh, but I want us to look... Um, look at verse uh, one through three real quick. So he's going after these religious people now, and he says, you may think, you know, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, get them, you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad, and you have no excuse. That's when the Gentiles look back and said, yeah, like, get them, right? But he says, you have no excuse either. When you say they are wicked— those Gentiles, those people who don't believe in God or acknowledge God, when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Skip down to verse 17. He says, you who call yourselves Jews, you're relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with God. It's like You who call yourself a Christian are relying on your belief in God and your church attendance So it can also fall in that category as well. He says, you know what he wants. You Jew, you know, you know, you have the law. You know what he wants. Churchgoer, you know, you've heard. You've heard the scriptures. You've heard the messages. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You got all the answers. You think you can instruct the ignorant, those ignorant people that don't acknowledge God, and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well, then if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use the items stolen from pagan temples? I'm guessing they were having a problem back in the day. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, and this is very convicting, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Yo, hello, like um, just for a moment, that's incredibly convicting because how important are our actions in front of other people, especially unbelievers? Do you want them to blaspheme the name of God because of your actions? I'm gonna say no on that. Like that's scary, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's very confronting. Uh, then Then down in verse 28, he says, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. Same thing can be said about Christians. You're not a true Christian just because you come to church, just because you've been in church ever since you were born, just because you say you believe in God. Like that's not how it works, right? And then he says, no, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it's a change of heart produced by the spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. You have to understand to a very religious Jew who is hearing this, this is going to have the same effect as a Gentile hearing what we read earlier. And the same for a religious Christian trusting their belief in church attendance and Bible reading for their salvation. That's gonna be extremely offensive to the Jew or the religious person. And they're gonna respond in one of two ways. They're gonna be offended, reject the messenger and the message, or they're gonna see their offense, be frightened and poised for good news. Obviously, God's intentions are for the latter. Obviously, that's God's intentions, And finally, Scripture sums up the last, this next scripture sums up the last two sections, making sure we understand the purpose, if we don't get it. (laughs) Paul does so by quoting from Psalms and Isaiah, showing us that this message is not new. This is not a new message. He's like, I'm going to show you in the Old Testament. It's the same message God has been showing us all along for thousands of years. Here's what it says in verse nine. Well, then should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one, let me just add this in there, nobody's born a Christian. Nobody is born on their way to heaven. All right. No one is truly wise. Verse 11. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. No fear. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. You can't be good enough. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. This entire section of scripture that we just walked through is to show us how sinful we are and how unrighteous all of humanity is. All of humanity is. A few weeks ago, um, I made mention of Ecclesiastes, and we're going through it now um, over on Wednesdays. And at the end, what was, uh, what was it the author said was kind of the point of it all? What was it? I think the author was Solomon. I want to be convinced otherwise, Trevor. But, uh, I mean, who knows, right? What do you think? you think it was Solomon? I was going to ask that on Wednesday. Yeah, okay. You're going to take the neutral position on that. Okay. I like it. But here's what, here's what the author of Ecclesiastes said, and we read this a couple of weeks ago in uh, chapter 12, verse 13, right? The end of his life, the author was, you know, what's the point of life um, that it followed would have brought ultimate joy, fulfillment, and purpose and happiness. Here's what he says. He says, that whole story in verse 13, that, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God, we just saw that in what Paul said. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, holding every secret thing, whether good or bad. This is echoed all throughout scripture. Fear God and obey. Fear God and obey. He says to fear God and that fear produces obedience. All right? I think this is the root of our unrighteousness. If you want to get at the root of our unrighteousness, I believe that it's the lack of fear that we have for God. And let me explain fear for a second. Fear does not mean fear like we imagine, like an abused child who um, just obeys so, because they're afraid. All right? That's not, that's not, that's not what, what godly fear is. Um, this fear is a holy fear. It's being, I like this explanation, Tim Keller said this, it's being so in awe of something or someone that the last thing you would dare to do is offend them. That's what, that's what fearing God really is. is you, are in, you are in such awe that you would never do anything to offend that person. To put it a silly way, it's the fear someone might have, because I'm trying to think, okay, in our terms. Um, it's the fear someone might have uh, if, you, if, if somebody ever got the opportunity to hang out with or have dinner with uh, their, their favorite celebrity. All right? Think about this for a moment. Go here with me for a moment. You're like, did you just reduce God to a celebrity? No, I did not chill out listen, okay? Go with me on this, all right? Because think about this for a moment. Whenever you're in the presence of, all right, I mean, you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, if, if there's, like, my son got to go play basketball at the Barclays Center um, a couple weeks ago, and there was talk that, that a Nets player might actually show up, all right? Um, and it's a very small, like, gathering of just you know a few people and so if one showed up like if one of the players showed up it like it's gonna be a pretty big deal and we're like on the first row so like it would be awesome to be like you know and we're just thinking i wonder who's gonna be here i wonder who's gonna be here. like i took david with me and we're like oh like i hope i hope one of them shows up but what happens whenever you like hear about that there's going to be a celebrity or you or you're like all of a sudden you randomly see someone in new york and you're like oh you know that awe, that sense of awe that you just saw someone? And maybe you're too cool for it. Maybe you're like, they're sinner just like me. Ah, chill out, okay? Like, like come on. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty cool, okay, whenever, whenever you see someone that's like that. But you're just so elated. Like, picture if it was your favorite celebrity, whoever that is. Don't share testimony. But whoever that is, we're just so elated. You're so in awe in their presence that you're trying to do everything you can not to mess it up. You're trying to do everything you can not to offend that person. That awe, that fear is what he's talking about. Where you realize that you are in the presence of the creator of the universe. The one who gives life, the one who gives breath. He embodies what is perfect and good and right. And he created us, invited us into a relationship with himself And we treated him with no awe, no wonder, no sense of amazement, and therefore no fear. And that lack of fear led to offense. It led to disobedience. That's what that leads to. But God is so rich in mercy and love. Listen, before I say what I'm about to say, he is so rich in mercy and love. Put that in yourself that he let us know how we have offended him. Because he could have just said, okay, fine. He could have said, go do your own thing. You do you. But he didn't. He didn't. He lovingly writes. Because a lot of people are going to look at Romans 1 8, 118 through 3.20 and they're going to go, that is one of the most unloving things I've ever read in my whole entire life. But he lovingly writes. God lovingly writes those passages because he doesn't want anyone to walk away from this scripture feeling uncondemned. He loves you so much that he does not want you to walk away feeling uncondemned, because a person who doesn't feel condemned has no hope for salvation. He wants us to feel that way. In his grace, he wants us all to know our need for a Savior, so that no one would perish, so that no one would experience his just and righteous and holy wrath. He loves us that much. John 3, 16, we said it a second ago, rings so loud and true. Look at it. For God so loved the world. Actually, this is a different translation. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. You're like, oh, I love it. He loves us. He gave his one and only son for us. So that everyone who believes in him will not what? Perish. What does that mean? It means will not experience the justice of God will not experience the wrath of God but instead they'll have everlasting life acknowledging our unrighteousness is the first step to receiving righteousness that's the first step which is what next week's message is going to be all about we've we've heard the bad news we've heard the bad news and we all sit condemned in the bad news. But the bad news makes the good news so good. There's two eggs behind the butter, (laughs) all right? It's there, it's so good, it's, the news is so, so, so good. And there's two practical takeaways, not cooking, all right? But there are two practical takeaways I want us to walk away with, okay? Number one, for those in the room or listening elsewhere who have yet to put their trust in Christ for their salvation, you need a savior. And Jesus died to take the wrath that you earned upon himself. And in return, he offers the righteousness that he earned. So if you've never done that, I would invite you to pray to him today and acknowledge your sinfulness, admit it, asking for forgiveness and confessing Jesus as your Lord, submitting to him from this day forward to his Lordship. And the Bible says, if you do that, you'll become a new creation and it will be like you are born again. You'll receive a new heart that loves and fears him and you will be forever forgiven of your sins, past, present and future. But number two, if you've done that, if you're in the room, if you're listening and you've done that, it's important for us to understand that as we share with those around us, the good news of Jesus, we can't just give them the Jesus loves them message. We must show them exactly how much Jesus loves them. We must show them their need for a savior because only then, will the I love you message from Jesus make sense? It shows them just how much that he loves them, all right? The non-religious and the religious alike, just like, I mean, in today's society, just like we read in the scripture, it still exists. There's the non-religious, you guys know them, you've met them, they're the ones that scoff at the belief in God, but you've also met the religious who are trusting their belief in God for their salvation. Those, those, they still exist. And, and most people believe that if there is a heaven, they're going there. And as you press in, it's either because they believe themselves to be a good person or because they believe in God. That's, that's the main reasons people think they're going to make it into heaven, and they are banking their eternity on this. They're banking their eternity on a lie. So it's important, as you have those gospel conversations each month, Um, as you invest in people this year that you hope to see come to Christ, uh, it's important that we understand why God's wrath is so important to His grace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.